Dear friends, welcome. Is this? No, that's not on. Oh, I had it muted. I'm going to try and find a place. I'm supposed to wear it on top of my head, but it feels kind of funny. So I'm going to try it like this. Hopefully it will work. So welcome here uh, on this second day of March uh, at Flathead Lutheran Bible Camp. And it's wonderful to be here in the winter, uh, to be here in the, in the deep snow. Um, thank you all to who braved the travel to be here today. And hopefully the roads were okay. They were, they were getting there last night, but uh, hopefully they were all right today. I'm just going to make a few adjustments. We'll see how that works. Kind of picks up the sound of my movement. I might have to put it on top of my head after all. Um, so today, uh, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about the five powers. Um, sometimes they're also known as the five faculties. Uh, out on the table in the entryway, there's a sutra uh, discourse on the five faculties. Uh, translated by uh, Taisanaro Bhikkhu, uh, who has done an amazing job of making the um, Pali Canon available to us uh, to read in English. Uh, he has translated an enormous amount of material. And this is one of them, um, uh, the sutra that's out there. Uh, and so there, we sometimes refer to the five faculties and the five powers. Uh, they're really two sides of the same coin. In um, one of the sutras, the uh, Saketa Sutta, the Buddha is talking about what the difference between the five powers and the five faculties are. And he tells us that they're just, um, just like a river when it goes around an island in the middle. Uh, from one perspective, it looks like it's two things. But from a, another perspective, you can see that it's actually one. Uh, so the faculties and the powers are, are, um, are two parts of the, um, of the same uh, teaching. Thich Nhat Hanh describes the faculties as uh, kind of a a power plant that's generating energy. And the powers, then, are the use of that energy. Um, so uh, another way of thinking about it is uh, as we're cultivating a garden. I know it's hard to think about gardening right now. Uh, but it will happen very soon. Uh, we'll start uh, turning the earth and start uh, getting ready to plant. Um, and so the faculties are that time we spend tending to and growing and developing our garden. Uh, and the uh, powers then would be the harvest, uh, the use of that. So um, when you see five faculties or five powers, just know that they're aspects of the, of the same thing. Um, and so they're there for us uh, uh, to think about it in a little bit of a, uh, different ways, but uh, really it's pointing towards the same thing. Um, <clears throat> and I, I don't have the, uh, we couldn't find the large pad of paper, so it's nice to have the uh, discourse uh, afterwards uh, so you don't have to write them all down and remember them all, uh, so they're all there. Um, but the five powers are um, 
faith and insight, I'm sorry, faith and effort, mindfulness, concentration, and insight. Um, and so we'll go through each of those kind of one by one and, and talk about uh, and explore a little bit about what each of those might mean. You'll notice that effort and mindfulness and concentration um, are also uh, part of the Eightfold Path. They are um, uh, pulled out of that. So a lot of these teachings are deeply interconnected. They're uh, just uh, kind of slightly different ways of looking at and examining the, um, the same aspects. And so the first uh, power, the first faculty uh, to look at is faith. Um, in the sutra, it talks about faith being uh, faith in the Buddha's awakening, faith in um, our capacity to awaken. Um, another way of thinking about that is a trust in our practice, uh, trust in our practice and trust in our sangha. Um, we don't often think of faith in a, a Buddhist context. It's a word that doesn't uh, play a large role, but it actually plays uh, a significant part of our, our practice. Um, and it's a little different in that it's not a, a blind faith. It's not uh, me sitting here uh, telling you that the practice works. It's you having that experience of stopping, of breathing, of uh, looking at uh, your suffering and knowing, hey, this actually, uh, I can start to notice things. I'm aware, I'm transforming suffering. It's um, uh, that faith in our own ability to do that. It's not a faith in, in somebody else. As we talked about uh, last night, if you were here, um, the Buddha only ever taught one thing, uh, and that was an end of suffering. And then, uh, there's hundreds and thousands of pages explaining how that works. <laughs> but it's important to remember that uh, all of these things are, are here, all of these practices, and they're not ideas, uh, they're not concepts uh, to um, hold on to, they're practices. Um, all of these practices are just here to help us end suffering, and that uh, specifically in ourselves and in the world. And in fact, um, the Buddha discouraged uh, us to have faith in um, anyone else. Uh, he encouraged us to be, um, be lights unto ourselves, uh, to use this practice uh, in our own way, in a creative way. There's a lovely story from the Kalama Sutra uh, where the Buddha uh, entered into the um, city of, the, of Kalamas and the people there said, you know, we have visiting uh, teachers come through here all of the time. Uh, it was that culture. There would be uh, different wandering mystics and ascetics who would come through. And they said, why should we believe or listen to you? And he said, ah, very good, you shouldn't. Uh, please don't listen to me. Um, let me offer you these practices, these teachings. And if um, 
you try them and they work for you, keep doing them. And if you try them and they don't work for you, please stop and uh, look for something else. Um, that's a lot of trust in the practice. Uh, for the Buddha to be able to say that to the people of Palamas. And it's a lot of trust um, that we have uh, as well in ourselves to be able to to come on a day of mindfulness uh, or on our cushions at home or on our weekly practice with our uh, friends on the, in the path and to come over and over and to sit and breathe and to see what happens and to know that that can be enough um, to come back to our breath, to notice and to come back to our breath. So there is a, um, a part of um, a part of the Buddha teaching that encourages doubt, um, but it's not necessarily doubt in ourselves. It's doubt in um, completely going off the word of somebody else, uh, or something we've read, or an idea that we think we understand. Um, it's good to doubt those things. Uh, good to doubt that maybe I don't quite understand this. And then to have that trust and that faith to keep practicing, uh, to keep coming back to the breath and to keep breathing. It's a wonderful um, experience. It's a wonderful gift of letting go as well. Um, letting go of our idea that we have to do something in a particular way uh, because somebody said so. When I was uh, um, putting this together and thinking about faith, I remember uh, years ago at our um, Deer Lodge Sangha, the full circle Sangha at the Montana State Prison, uh, I was uh, helping to facilitate one of the practice days there. And one of the uh, Sangha members said, you know, this practice, uh, I don't know about this. He said, because when, before I started practicing, I was totally fine. And now I realize that I've got a lot of problems. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, um, and so I think, uh, um, I think that's a great testament uh, to um, that trust in the practice. Because uh, we do have those experiences where uh, we break down a little bit. We break open. Um, things that we thought that we knew, things that were familiar, um, don't feel quite the same way, don't feel quite as familiar as they used to. Um, and so it takes a lot of um, courage, I think, on our part to trust uh, that coming back to our breath, coming back to our sangha is enough. When I uh, f came on my first retreat in uh, 1999, uh, when we were still meeting up on Swan Lake, uh, there's a lovely retreat center up there. Um, and uh, I remember coming back uh, uh, after that retreat, and I was walking uh, very mindfully on, on campus. And um, 
uh, at the University of Montana. And um, I went and I, I had an appointment with somebody. I don't remember who it was. And they said, oh, you look so peaceful and calm. And I said, oh, yeah, I just came off retreat. You know? And um, so you know, I, I left uh, thinking that I was all peaceful and calm and uh, uh, just mindfully walking through campus. And then a friend of mine says, what's wrong with you? You look like you have the weight of the world on your shoulders. Um, and it, it, uh, it made me realize that they were both right. Um, there was a calm and a, and a peacefulness. But at the same time, um, I think when we uh, stop and we practice and uh, when we have our, um, that trust and that faith in our practice, we also uh, become open and uh, aware of uh, all the suffering that we carry and all the suffering that the world carries. So we can be light and calm, and we can also carry the weight of the world on our shoulders when we come into this practice. Maybe not carrying it as a burden, uh, but carrying it in our hearts and in our awareness. We, uh, um, this practice, when we really trust in it and trust in our ability to it, uh, to engage in this practice, we uh, were able to taste freedom, uh, as we may have tasted this morning, um, during our guided meditation. But we also become very aware of the depth of our suffering um, and the depth of the suffering that's out there. Recently in our um, uh, practice uh, on Tuesday nights, uh, there's been a, some conversation that's been bubbling up. And this comes up in myself and in other people uh, that I've known throughout the years. And it's, um, why do we do this practice? Why do we come here? Um, you know, why do we drive on snowy roads uh, to come and breathe? Um, it's good to get in touch with that. Um, that kind of uh, doubt or questioning can be very helpful and healthy, but it can also um, turn us away from the practice. Uh, if that doubt becomes greater than our trust, um, if that doubt becomes greater than our faith in this practice, what are we doing here anyway? Um, and that question can become a seed, and that seed can grow. Um, and it can take over. Um, and we've probably all known people who have uh, uh, left practice after a while. Um, they come for a little bit and then they disappear. Yeah. Not necessarily a bad thing, uh, but I do think that part of it is that question comes up. Um, and I think a little bit of that is uh, when we first come into this practice, at least in my experience, and I don't know if this is yours as well, but it, it feels like there's great transformation that happens very quickly. Um, you come off your first retreat and people notice how mindful you are, right? It's, uh, at least that's what happened to me, and also how much uh, suffering I'm carrying. But um, um, 
I think that as we uh, stay with this practice, uh, kind of those large uh, understandings, those large um, pieces of transformation uh, um, dissipates a little bit. We don't have quite the same um, initial transformation we do as when we, we come for the first time. Like that uh, um, person from the Full Circle Sangha. Uh, you know, I was fine before I started and I suddenly notice, you know, how many problems I have. Um, maybe we've never taken the time to stop and sit and breathe before. And so we get this, um, it's very exciting uh, to notice that, uh, to see that. And then we keep doing it um, and our practice becomes familiar, just like our old habits, our old way of being became familiar. Um, so we didn't notice all the problems we had. Uh, and so um, we end up on a, a kind of a plateau where there's not a lot happening uh, that we're aware of. Uh, it's not coming into our awareness in the same way. Um, and this is where that uh, that energy, that faculty uh, that we've developed of trust and that power now, we can use that faith to, to um, stay with that plateau for a little bit, to stay in that place of um, not big transformation, um, to stay in that place of um, where we just feel like, why am I doing this? Uh, nothing's happening. But we trust that uh, something has happened, and we also trust that something can happen. Uh, so we kind of keep, keep with it. We kind of stick with that practice um, of breathing, of stopping, of looking, um, of coming together. Um, not necessarily uh, because um, because we feel these great transformations happening all the time, but because we know that there's something special about this, uh, something that we've touched before, and something that, um, uh, that will continue uh, to illuminate places in our lives and places in ourselves that uh, we haven't paid attention to. Our habit energies, our way of being uh, runs very, very deep. Um, we developed these habits, uh, you know, when we were infants um, as ways of uh, feeling safe. Whether our environment was safe or not, uh, we still developed uh, ways of trying to feel safe. Um, and we kept uh, developing those throughout our whole lives. And so when we come to the practice, uh, we might be aware of some of the large ones, uh, but there are some that run so deep in us um, that uh, uh, it takes a, um, a lot of work to uncover. It takes a lot of uh, time uh, and energy. And that leads us into that second uh, power, that second faculty, which is effort uh, or diligence. Um, when, our, uh, when our faith in the practice is strong, uh, 
effort comes effortlessly. Uh, it's easy um, to pay attention. It's easy to notice what's uh, arising within us. Um, but when, our, uh, when that doubt is there, uh, not the helpful kind of doubt that encourages us to look deeper, but the kind of doubt that, um, that leads us down a path of, why am I doing this? This isn't helping. Um, I, or in my case, I get that I'm no good at this anyway. Uh, maybe I should just uh, quit. Uh, we can uh, cultivate that energy or that faculty, that power of effort, of diligence. Mm. And it's interesting because uh, when we do feel that um, uncertainty about why we're here, um, I don't mean that existentially necessarily, but why we're here, um, why we come and do this, um, uh, it, it can help us to put a little, um, a little effort into our practice, a little more diligence. Um, and, and by effort, um, I'm not talking about like kind of you know, doing it better, you know, or like getting all, uh, all tense or um, you know, being the, the person who can sit the longest and the straightest. Uh, I'll share an aside. When we were on retreat um, uh, here, maybe three, four years ago, uh, and my youngest son, I guess he, he was probably two or three, uh, we were doing an activity outdoors, and um, everyone came uh, doing walking meditation over the hill uh, down to where the children were. And uh, he, he backed up into me, and he said, Daddy, what are those? Um, <laughs> <laughs> not who are they, not what are they doing, but what are those? Um, you know, uh, I said people. <laughs> uh, I missed my opportunity to say free people. But, um, but it made me wonder, because um, uh, I know that I've been in that group before walking, and I've been really working hard to walk right. Um, to walk correctly. Uh, and so it made me wonder, um, you know, how do, uh, how do free people walk? Um, even if we're walking slowly, so that uh, rather than a two-year-old being frightened by, <laughs> it was a little eerie actually, <laughs> seeing a bunch of slow people kind of emerging over a hill and walking <laughs> towards you. But, um, <coughs> but, um, but I wonder what it would look like uh, for a two-year-old to look and see um, you know, beautiful, free people. Uh, just to, it was just a point of inquiry. Um, and that kind of effort, uh, not the, uh, the kind of effort um, that in the uh, Eightfold Path is called right effort, that is effort that... Uh, leads us to um, uh, the ending suffering. Uh, you can kind of see how that other effort might lead towards suffering. Um, that right effort um, is a lot more gentle. Uh, it's a lot more curious. Um, there's a lot more light in it. Um, 
It's not trying to do something correct. It's just trying to, uh, to breathe. That kind of effort uh, doesn't tire us out. And in fact, it generates energy. Um, that kind of effort uh, um, excites us a little bit um, because we are just more curious about some of the things that uh, going on inside and around us that maybe we haven't noticed before that are a little subtler. And traditionally, uh, right effort is taught that when we notice positive or wholesome, skillful, uh, right uh, mental formations, uh, that, that is our thoughts, our, our feelings, emotions. And when we notice those, we work to water them and to keep them in our consciousness a little bit longer. We allow them to continue. Uh, or like we did this morning, uh, perhaps happiness uh, or peace uh, were not present in you at that moment. Uh, but we invite that seed in us to grow. Uh, we invite that happiness. Uh, and we, we tend to it. We water it. Uh, we put our uh, effort into it. So that as these, um, uh, so the things that are already arisen in us and the things that have not yet arisen, uh, we water and we tend to. I had a, a friend um, when I was brand new to this practice in 1999, uh, she had been sitting with the Sangha for a little bit. And um, she was uh, going through a divorce. And I uh, ran into her in the, uh, we lived in the same neighborhood. And I ran into her in the neighborhood. And she said, you know, I don't want to just sit here and be with my suffering. She said, I just want to listen to Van Morrison records. and." Um, And I think that was a um, very skillful uh, observation. Um, when I first heard it, you know, since I was new to the practice and I had a deep desire to do it absolutely perfectly, I thought, well, that's not how it works. You're supposed to sit with whatever arises. But she actually was uh, teaching me that um, sometimes our suffering, uh, sometimes the things that are in our consciousness are, are too big for a little bit. They're overwhelming. So we need to water those positive seeds. Uh, and for her, it was through Van Morrison records. Um, brought up feelings of, of joy in her. Um, so she, uh, at that moment, didn't have the capacity uh, to call forth those on her own uh, because the suffering was too great. So she sought um, a way, uh, a tool that she knew to uh, water that seed of, of joy in her so that it could be strong. Uh, it doesn't make the other seed of suffering go away, uh, but it does um, remind us that there, are, uh, that there is joy too. And so the suffering doesn't look quite as large when you're sitting in a place of joy. And it is a, a skillful means. The other part of the traditional teaching of, of effort is that uh, when negative seeds or unwholesome or unskillful seeds arise in us, um, that we work to not water them. Uh, and that when we have uh, unwholesome or unskillful seeds, uh, 
that are in our consciousness that have not arisen, we work to make sure that they don't. Um, so those are the other two parts of effort. When the, uh, when the difficulties arise, uh, we work to not give them more, um, uh, not to feed them more. Uh, and also we work to not let the other ones arise. And I do want to point out that this uh, might look like, um, you know, in the example I gave about listening to Van Morrison records, uh, it might uh, look like avoidance of suffering. Um, and we have to be careful. Um, we have to be careful that uh, we are aware of our suffering. We know that it's there. Um, and for whatever reason, at that moment, we just don't have the capacity to be with it. Uh, so we might say to our suffering, I know you're there. I know you will be there. But right now, I need to water some seeds of joy in myself so that I can come back to you, uh, so that I can come back to my suffering with fresh eyes, uh, with a fresh heart. Uh, with a sense of stability and peace in myself. Um, because we know that if the suffering is too big and we try to be with it, um, the suffering takes over. Uh, and it, it becomes our practice. Our practice becomes a practice of suffering. So we want to water the seeds uh, of stability, of joy in us, so that um, when we do come back to that suffering, we are in control. We are stable, and we are able to be with our suffering in that way. I think uh, when I uh, talk to some of the um, uh, patients that I work with in hospice, uh, you know, they fear that perhaps they're in denial. Um, at times, uh, in denial of their own um, mortality. And I think uh, this uh, practice is actually very helpful in that time, because there are two kinds of denial, just like there's two kinds of avoidance. There's the, I think of it like when you get a knock at the door, when suffering comes knocking, uh, you can go and hide behind the couch and hope that it goes away. Uh, that's probably not the healthy kind of denial. Um, that's where you pretend that it's not there, that you don't have suffering knocking at the door. Um, it's a fear response uh, to that suffering. Um, but there's another kind of denial where you uh, go and you walk up to the door and you open and you see your suffering there and you smile and you say, hello, suffering. I don't think I can let you in today. Uh, I have some other things that I need to tend to, but please come back when I'm feeling uh, a little better. And then you close the door, and then you go back to what you were doing. That kind of denial, um, that kind of um, practice uh, um, isn't a running away. It's an acknowledgment. Um, and it's also a, uh, an understanding of what we are capable of at that moment. Um, because if the suffering is there, uh, it will come back. Uh, we can guarantee it. It will knock. 
repeatedly uh, to get our attention. And so uh, when we have, um, as we were talking about that, uh, that doubt that comes up, uh, what good is this practice? Uh, why am I here? What are we doing? Um, that can be uh, an unskillful seed that perhaps uh, we inadvertently water uh, that grows deeper in our consciousness. Um, I'll never get it right. Um, and we, uh, you know, the more attention we give to those seeds, uh, the more they will grow and develop into our consciousness. And when I say consciousness here, it's not, um, it's not our, our thinking that I'm talking about. It's, um, you know, with this metaphor, it's the whole garden that's growing in us at that moment. Um, the garden of our doubt, of our joy, of our practice. Of our, um, of our fear, of our uncertainty, those old deep habits, all of that is growing and uh, being tended to. And that constellation of, of seeds that it's manifesting at that moment, that is our consciousness. Um, and when I talk about seeds uh, in uh, Buddhist psychology, they... Uh, they talk about uh, six, there's eight consciousnesses. Six of them are um, the consciousness that results from when one of our senses contacts something outside of us. The meeting of those two things creates consciousness. So when my eye sees the bell, that meeting creates uh, what they call eye consciousness, E-Y-E, I consciousness. Um, likewise, when we hear the bell, that creates hearing consciousness, etc. Um, the sixth uh, um, consciousness that's included in there, uh, so the, you know, the five basic senses, uh, and then the sixth one is when our mind contacts uh, a mental formation, that is a thought or a feeling, uh, when our mind contacts that, mind consciousness arises. Uh, it's helpful to think of our um, minds as one of our senses. Uh, for me, that helps um, uh, take away some of my uh, thoughts uh, and beliefs um, power over me, to think of them as just another sense. Uh, just like hearing, there's thinking. Um, the uh, seventh consciousness is uh, what's called store consciousness. It's like a, a storehouse of all the uh, possibilities of experience, uh, all the seeds. Um, that's the um, metaphor that's commonly used, uh, are seeds in, within us. And that store consciousness houses all of those seeds. Um, And so we might think uh, some of our um, habits are seeds that are, are growing within us. Some of our patterns of thought um, that come into our um, mind uh, consciousness are seeds growing in us. Um, 
Negative self-talk is a seed. But so is mindfulness. Um, and so is um, right effort. Faith and effort uh, kind of work together. Um, this uh, uh, trust in our practice um, uh, helps us um, have more um, energy and more diligence in our practice. Uh, this trust that, it, that it's working even if we don't see it um, helps us have that. And our um, consciousness is always changing. Um, it's always in flux, which is really good news, especially if you're in the midst of a very uh, difficult uh, seed that is uh, overwhelming your consciousness. That's changing. Um, and it will it'll arise, it'll stay, and it will go away. Um, just like uh, our, um, our joy will arise, it will stay, and it will go away. So that's why we spend a little time watering our joy, so that maybe it can stay a little bit longer. Um, and that's why we, um, one of the reasons to the answer, why do we come here? I know I haven't answered it, but it's more of a question for you. Uh, but um, one of the um, reasons that we do come back um, is to water that seed of mindfulness, to water that seed of faith, to water that seed of um, diligence in us so that it can grow, that it can continue, um, so that that can be part of our consciousness. Um, how wonderful if that could be part of our consciousness all of the time. Um, let me know if you can do that, please. Um, um, so um, the third uh, uh, power uh, kind of started talking about it already, is mindfulness. Um, it, um, mindfulness allows uh, uh, the awareness of the seeds that are present in our consciousness at any given moment. Uh, mindfulness um, lets us uh, um, be with those. But of course, mindfulness itself is a seed that needs to be watered. Um, I wonder if like, mindfulness can water itself. Uh, probably can. It's that effortless effort. Um, Thich Nhat Hanh in uh, 2014 uh, was speaking um, on retreat and he called all of the, I wasn't present at that, but he called all of the um, lay and monastic Dharma teachers that were present uh, to come forward and kind of directed his talk at them and talked about mindfulness. Um, because uh, as we know, mindfulness um, is all over the place. Uh, we see it, um, I think there's a, a mindful magazine that comes out. Uh, we see um, many, many, many books about it. We see it being integrated into schools, into um, hospitals, into um, uh, therapy, into counseling. Um, and um, Thich Nhat Hanh, uh, very, very clearly uh, said, please uh, always feel free to teach mindfulness. Um, it, you know, it's a gift. But just be careful how we teach it. Um, and I would say, likewise, be careful how we practice it. 
Um, he said, mindfulness is not an instrument or a tool. Um, he said, uh, a knife is a tool. It can be used to carve something beautiful, and it can also be used to harm. Mindfulness cannot be used to harm, he said. He said, mindfulness uh, is a path. Um, in fact, it's part of the Eightfold Path. Um, mindfulness is a path that leads to the end of suffering. So that's how we know if our mindfulness is, um, uh, is a path versus a tool. Um, So mindfulness is sometimes taught uh, as a tool uh, to ease uh, stress, for example, or to um, uh, manage our anger, uh, or to manage um, you know, whatever kind of emotion is coming up in us. It's, it's taught as, if you do mindfulness practice, then your stress will be managed. Um, but you can see how that's using mindfulness more as a tool. Um, and in fact, at that point, um, we may be uh, inviting awareness and, uh, um, into our, our practice. But if we're, if we're feeling stress and we say, well, I'm going to do mindfulness now so I won't feel stress, um, we are uh, trying to use mindfulness as, a, as an instrument to get something. Um, so a little different if. Um, we're feeling stress, and we invite mindfulness there, uh, what that invitation is, is not to get rid of the stress, uh, or whatever it is that we're working with, but to actually be with it, um, to be very present with it, with loving attention. Uh, that loving attention is important. It's not just awareness. Um, it's awareness with loving intention. Uh, and so we see our stress at that moment, and, or whatever seed is in us. And we, our mindfulness then uh, guides us to be with it instead of engaging in those avoidance behaviors. Um, or our mindfulness allows us to see what our capacity is so that we can go water uh, another seed so that we can come back to our suffering. Simply breathing and calming um, as a way of getting rid of stress, doesn't address what's uh, the cause of that stress. It just addresses the, uh, the symptom at that moment. And that very same stress is going to come back uh, later. And so um, mindfulness, in this case, uh, invites our loving attention and invites our presence uh, to be with whatever it is, whether it's our joy our excitement, our sorrow, um, our fear. Uh, I remember uh, looking at my babies um, when they were babies. I still look at them now, but I mean, uh, um, <laughs> when they were just there, and just looking at those babies. Um, with curiosity, like what, where did you come from, you know? Where, um, what will you become, you know? 
who are you? Looking at them with that kind of loving attention. Um, that's a practice of mindfulness. Imagine if we looked at our anger that way, uh, with the same way we might look at a, a newborn baby um, when our anger comes up. What will you become? Who are you? Where did you come from? That's very different than I'm going to breathe so my anger goes away. When I, um, uh, about 16 years ago, I, I taught uh, preschool. And I worked with, um, I had a class of three-year-olds, uh, about seven or eight little three-year-olds a day that I would, um, that, were, that were in my care. And um, I remember, uh, you know, part of, part of the development of a three-year-old uh, is understanding uh, kind of their internal world, starting to, to understand uh, what their experience is, what their, their feelings are. And, um, and I noticed uh, that I was really bad at it. I was really bad at guiding them through that. I did not have a very rich or developed understanding of... Um, uh, my internal experience of my uh, feeling world. I uh, didn't have the vocabulary for it. And there was a time in my life when I thought I rarely had feelings. Um, I thought it was all up here. And, but it, uh, one, of the, um, one of the gifts of working with those uh, little three-year-olds was that uh, I was um, called to help them name their feelings. And so we, you know, we, sad, mad, you know, those are easy. Um, bad, how do you feel bad? Um, and so uh, helping them have a little nuance uh, to that helped me actually to uh, understand what was going on inside uh, more deeply. Um, and so part of our um, mindfulness practice uh, we notice um, with that kind of curiosity, you know, what are you? What am I experiencing? And then we can give it a name. Um, and that naming, uh, um, you know, can help uh, uh, develop that sense of, of what's going on inside. It adds nuance uh, and texture to our emotions. Um, our feelings really are rooted in uh, positive, negative, or neutral. Um, that's really where most of them come from. Um, so when someone says, how do you feel bad? Well, that's actually kind of getting down to the root. Um, but then it's nice to ha add a little nuance to that. Do you feel uh, um, frustrated? Uh, do you feel pain, physical pain, sick? Um, do you feel uh, afraid? Um, you know, do you feel a sense of injustice? Uh, kind of starting to, to add a little nuance to these, uh, 
these experiences um, helps us so that when those seeds arise, uh, they're familiar to us and we can name them and, and that we can see them as they come up. Our feelings and our emotions are personal uh, as well as uh, inherited. Um, and um, they're personal in the sense that uh, you know, we experience them and that certain things uh, bring up in us uh, um, particular seeds. But they're also inherited in the sense that uh, our family systems have given us uh, access to these seeds for um, for many years. One, uh, a wonderful example in my <laughs> wonderful, uh, a very clear example in my family is uh, the seed of anger. Uh, I have inherited that from my father, who inherited it from his father, and I see it growing and being watered in my children. Um, uh, my hope is that. Um, that I were able to um, uh, also inherit the seeds of uh, understanding and of mindfulness. Uh, I fear that the seed of anger uh, I have already transmitted. Um, and it <laughs> oh. The microphone has inherited the seed of the other microphone. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but I, I, I see that, they, that I've already transmitted that seed. Um, but I can, uh, it's not hopeless. Uh, I can work towards not watering it, uh, work towards um, letting it lie dormant. And when it does arise, we can work towards um, letting it dissipate more quickly and not letting it uh, run the show. Um, and our, um, our thoughts, our, our feelings, um, uh, when we start to, to notice them more, to, to pay more attention, to name them, uh, start to notice that they often precede our thinking. Um, and then our thinking uh, becomes a way of explaining our feelings. Um, Benjamin Franklin uh, was a vegetarian for a number of years. And he was on a fishing boat. And um, he noticed that when one of the fish was cut open, there was a smaller fish inside of it. And he thought at that moment, um, whoa, if those fish eat uh, other fish, maybe it's OK for me to eat fish. Um, basically, he, want, he, he liked fish and he wanted to eat it, right? And so he stopped and, and he caught himself. And he has a wonderful quote that he says, so convenient a thing to be a reasonable creature, since it enables one to find or make a reason for anything one has a mind to do. Um, and so I think a, a, a lot of... Uh, a lot of what I've been noticing is a lot of my experience is driven by a feeling, a like, a dislike, um, some kind of inherited uh, understanding or uh, personally developed understanding of how things could be. 
And, um, and then afterwards I make a, what sounds to me like a really wonderful reason of why that's true. Um, but it's, it's interesting to get back down to the feeling, uh, to bring it back down there. I don't know what to do. I could switch to this microphone. Well, that's better. Um, one, one example I'll share is that when um, we were working on, this is a very minor example, but it, it helped me understand uh, what was going on. We were uh, working with the Unitarian Universalist Fellowship of Missoula, and we were putting together the order of service, and we were talking about implementing some changes uh, to the order of service, uh, so putting things in a different order. And I really liked the old order of service. And so I started coming up with these really wonderful, uh, uh, insightful reasons of why the uh, original order of service was so, so skillful and so helpful. Started thinking of things like, uh, well, when we read together, it joins our voices as one. And then when we, and I, I stopped myself before I spoke out loud. And I, I realized, you know, I just like it. <laughs> um, <laughs> And it's really not that big of a deal uh, to let that go. Uh, and so I, um, um, and so we changed it, and it's totally fine. <laughs> there, it, I like the new one now too. But it's interesting. There's a resistance to that change to something that we are familiar with, and that familiarity often um, creates a, a something that a, a preferential um, way of viewing that a preference. And then we base all our arguments and reasoning on that preference. And it's hard to know if it's uh, sometimes if it's um, a preference or if it's true. Um, and one way that I use um, uh, to discern uh, is this: is this just a preference or is this something else? And it comes from a, a story of uh, when Thich Nhat Hanh was. Uh, facilitating a, a disagreement between uh, two monks. Um, they were unable to resolve it on their own. And so they, uh, they were uh, in front of the community in a beginning a new ceremony with uh, Thich Nhat Hanh present. And um, one of the monks uh, started uh, talking about, um, about what happened. He was very angry. and. Um, and Thich Nhat Hanh stopped him, and the monk said, but I'm just you know, talking about the truth. And, um, and Thich Nhat Hanh said, no. What you are saying is factually accurate. The truth always uplifts. It's um, a very powerful teaching uh, to know the difference between what's factually accurate and what is true. Uh, they're often um, in line, but truth will um, uplift. Truth will bring together. And so if, um, 
in that silly example of putting together an order of service. There's no truth in that. Um, it doesn't matter um, what we do in that sense. And so to support our mindfulness, we move into our fourth power, uh, which is concentration. I'm aware of the time. Um, but uh, concentration, uh, it allows that energy of mindfulness, um, that energy, uh, that faculty, that power of mindfulness, of faith, of effort, uh, to remain, to be there. Um, when our concentration is not uh, very strong, um, our energy of mindfulness can come up and then it can go away very quickly. Uh, and the suffering just hangs out because the suffering knows what, the suffer, our suffering knows how to stay in our consciousness. Uh, we're trying to teach mindfulness how to stay in our um, consciousness as well. And so um, when our concentration is, is uh, not quite as strong and that energy, that faculty, that power of concentration is not strong, then mindfulness and effort and faith can't remain in our consciousness, and they, they go back into that store consciousness. And this uh, past uh, this past year, around the big, uh, end of the year last year of 2018, I um, realized that my concentration was very very poor. I was um, doing a lot. And I was um, excited about all the things that I was doing. And I noticed that I was starting to drift away. Um, and that when I would sit down to breathe, I could follow a breath or two. And then I was thinking about all the exciting things that I might do next. My concentration was very weak. Uh, so I spent two months um, just working on concentration again. Uh, just uh, doing that practice of coming back to our breath. Coming back to our breathing. Breathing in, breathing out. That's it. Um, because I, I know that um, when my concentration is poor, I know that all these other um, powers uh, will also be poor. Um, and I know that when my concentration is stable, that those other powers can also be stable at that time. And again, uh, this concentration is not the, uh, that rigid um, concentration of, um, you know, where like your, internally your face is all, your mind is all tight and hanging on to every breath. Uh, an example, uh, there's an interview with an uh, Israeli fighter pilot, and they asked if he was uh, concentrated uh, during his missions, where he would fly, and uh, said, "Oh yeah, you know, we are so we're aware of everything around us. Um, you know, the instrument panel, where the other jets are, what's happening on the ground, where we are. You know, any movement." He said, "There, you know, we are extremely concentrated." And the interviewer said, well, "What do you do when you're done with the mission?" And they said, "Well, we sleep for like 24 hours because it's so exhausting." Um, and so you can see that that kind of concentration, uh, that, that quality of concentration, while it may serve us in a time of danger or stress, um, 
uh, that's not the kind of concentration that we're trying to cultivate here. Uh, um, unless you have the luxury of being able to do that for a couple hours a day and then sleeping for 24 hours afterwards. Um, it's more like a, a, an open focus. Um, I think of it as, uh, um, you know, when you're uh, holding uh, somebody's hand, uh, you can squeeze it really tightly, uh, which will probably be an unpleasant experience uh, for the other person. But you can just, just offer enough pressure, enough um, holding to say that I am here. Um, and that person knows you're there. And uh, it's, you're there, you're present, but you're not rigid. It's relaxed, it's easy. And so that quality of concentration. Um, and so that, uh, that, a lot, that gentleness, uh, that gentle attention, that gentle um, focus, I am here allows us to stay with um, those seeds that kind of manifest in our consciousness, allows us to um, keep that mindfulness, that effort, that faith alive and present. Instead of trying to control the situation. Concentration and mindfulness, uh, you know, as they work together, they allow us to just be with what is, just be with uh, the world as it is uh, in that moment, whatever is arising in us and around us. And to step forward from there, to step forward from that place of, of um, mindfulness, of concentration. And our last um, power the power of insight, of uh, sometimes translated as wisdom or discernment. Uh, and you can kind of see how this has been building up to this. Uh, we have faith in our practice. We put effort into it. We're mindful of what's around us. We're able to stay with that. And that leads us to um, understanding, to insight, uh, to to seeing things that perhaps we hadn't seen before. We start to understand how our consciousness works. Uh, we start to see things as they come up and as they hang around and as they go away. We start to notice that. We start to notice how our particular consciousness works, how um, those years of our, our habits, uh, how they are um, uh, kind of creating certain seeds uh, to come up um, because they're familiar, they're comfortable. Um, that seed of anger that's transmitted to me uh, from my family and that I've passed on, that is um, a familiar seed. Uh, it's not a pleasant one, but it's familiar. I know what it feels like. I know what the texture is like. Uh, and so it comes up very easily. Um, and so with the uh, power of insight, you start to I start to notice that. And we can start to notice uh, those seeds that come up. I think that's one of the reasons we have that huge insight when we first come into practice. We start to see 
uh, kind of how our, our life and how our world is working um, that we never took time to notice before. But over time, insights uh, start to become a little more subtle, a little subtler because, uh, um, as I said, those habit energies and the sufferings are subtler. They um, are very deep in our consciousness. And so we require more effort, more mindfulness, more faith, more concentration to shine light on these uh, uh, deeper uh, seeds, seeds that, um, that are uh, much deeper. And so faith uh, supports us uh, when we're in that, those areas of that plateau. Our faith uh, supports us because we know that we can have insight. We know we have the capacity to have insight for transformation, for discernment. And so these five powers are all interconnected. If I were to write them on the um, invisible whiteboard or the pad, I would have written them in a circle. Um, because when we have insight into our uh, being, into our consciousness, or into the way the world works, that gives us faith that our practice is working and it keeps going around in a cycle. Um, and insights uh, aren't always just understandings. Uh, sometimes an insight can uh, manifest when you're in a familiar situation and you respond differently than you ever have before. That's an insight. Um, it's not at the level of thought, but it's an insight. Um, or when you see someone or something in a new way uh, that's surprising, that's an insight. Uh, it doesn't always just mean new understanding. But our, uh, as we alluded to a little last night, um, our Sangha practice uh, is really an external form of these five powers. Um, when we hear uh, Dharma sharing from individuals or a talk, um, or we hear other individuals' experiences, that gives us faith um, that the practice is working for them. And so we might be in a place where our practice is um, at a low, and we're starting to experience that. Why do we come? And then we hear from one of our friends uh, an insight that, that she is sharing, and we say, oh my gosh, you know, that's amazing. And it, it reminds us, oh yeah, this practice does work. And we hear it uh, from other people. It, it, it's not that their insight that they're sharing is our insight, but we celebrate in the fact that there was an insight. We don't have to have someone else's experience, um, but we celebrate their experience, and we, we trust that, oh, I can have my own experiences too. This is good. So when your faith is low, that's a wonderful time to come to Sangha. Um, because uh, it's so inspiring to hear from other people and to hear what they're uh, experiencing and going through. Um, our practice, uh, our, our, um, our Sangha practice uh, leads us um, through that cycle of faith, effort, uh, mindfulness, concentration, and insight. It, in, it inspires us to come back into that wheel wherever uh, we might find ourselves. Um,
And so, um, you know, I encourage uh, um, all of us to uh, kind of get back into touch with our original intention. Why did we start coming here? Um, because that can have that effect of generating that faith, which leads to all these other uh, aspects. And if, um, if we're finding that we're just not in a place where we're feeling that, coming to Sangha practice or picking another one on the wheel, um, you know, like for me, just concentration, just focusing on that led to all of these other aspects starting to, to come back into play. Um, uh, and all of you who are here today, I think, have that original or that initial understanding that there's something about this practice that works uh, for you, or there's something about this practice that leads to the end of suffering. So that's why we're here. Uh, that's why we come back. Um, that's why we uh, continue to practice. So with that, uh, we have two minutes until lunch. Uh, we'll have Bryce offer us three sounds of the bell. <laughs>